0: Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on cagesidepress.com. I'm Danny Gobi Freeland, joined as always by my co host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. The UFC is sadly off this week, but that doesn't mean we don't have some great content to get to you guys. First, we are going to be interviewing Jonathan Martinez, who fights in a week from this upcoming Saturday against Cub Swanson. He's talking about street fighting in this interview, so you're going to want to make sure to tune into that. And a little bit later on, we'll be talking to Mana Martinez, also fighting at UFC Vegas 62, and he's talking about jumping guard in MMA, which is a heck of an interesting story. So make sure to tune into both of those. Sandwiched in between, Shockwave Dave will join me to talk about the most forgotten champions in UFC history. We'll be breaking down our list of our five favorites, as well as a couple of honorable mentions. So tune into that, and you can get all of that great content right now the hosts are ready the fighters are ready listeners make some noise if you are ready for top turtle mma with shockwave and gumby All right, and joining me today is Jonathan Martinez, who fights Cub Swanson at UFC Vegas 62. That fight is on October 15th. So, Jonathan, I I was just taking a quick look over your record on Tapology right before we got on the air here. And I noticed that your fight week this week coming up is going to be the 10-year anniversary of your first ever amateur bout. What does it feel like to be 10 years in? I mean, at a pretty young age, you know, it's like you're an old guy at this point. What's it feel like to be 10 years into your career at this point and looking back at it all?
1: Um, it feels really good. I just – I go back and look at everything I used to do, like, back then and everything I learned when I'm still learning more. So it's, like, it's pretty cool just watching – because uh, I think two days ago I was watching, like, my, my fights when I buried my amateur fights, and it was, like – it was so weird compared to now. So it's, like, a way big difference.
0: Yeah, and obviously tons of talent difference there, right? Because now you're, you know, fighting in the UFC. You're on this massive win streak, all that stuff. But but what about it felt so different? Did you feel like you weren't even watching yourself? Was there some aspect of it that made you feel awkward?
1: I I don't know. I just feel like because I come from, you know, fighting in the streets a lot. So it was like just like to me it was like a little kid just going in there and just throwing just to throw and – now I watch myself and it just it's more like doing more art than just throwing just any punch I want <laughs> and,
0: and and so that's that's how you got started in fighting I take it then is that you, you you were a kid who fought in the street you were a kid who who liked to throw around a little bit on the, the streets and you wound up in a cage is, is that roughly how you came to the sport MMA
1: yeah pretty much I was always in reality I was always fighting and When I was a young age, just because I didn't want to be in Texas. I'm originally from California. So I would get in trouble a lot and try to fight everybody. But I wouldn't call them out because I was a really shy person. So I would tell my friends to tell them that I want to fight the next day. So it will be like they'll set it up and they'll say yes and they'll tell me. So I'll be at home. I'll be doing push-ups, hitting the bag. I I was getting ready to fight the next day. So, yeah, that's how it pretty much happened.
0: Man, dude, that that's wild. Now, out of curiosity, is this like a this like an every week thing? This is an every day thing? This is an every month thing? How, how often were you you having your friends, you know, be be the Dana White for you?
1: I usually fight uh, once or twice a week. So I remember freshman year, I uh, pretty much fought about 20 times, you know, and I just kept fighting and fighting. I'm, I'll break my my hand and I'll just wrap it up and try to fight again and i was always just trying to fight i liked fighting and i guess my dad got tired of me getting in trouble so he put me in taekwondo you know and that's when i started getting beat up and (laughs) realized that i wasn't the toughest guy i thought i was
0: well and that's what i was gonna ask you next too you know obviously you must have been doing good if you're doing it two times a week like are we talking like you know the the hicks and gracie undefeated on the streets record
1: i I was always throwing kicks, and that's why I didn't even know how to kick like I was always like kicking people I was just watching a lot of thing karate movies and I would just try to kick so when they put me in Taekwondo, started learning how to kick and all that, so I pretty much used that out there too so you know that was my i guess getting experience like going to taekwondo learning and then fighting out there too
0: well and that that's really interesting to me too because you you said. You know, you, you had a bunch of those fights as a freshman, I'm assuming more as a, a sophomore before your dad got sick of you fighting on the streets and whatnot. But y- you yeah. also took your amateur debut, what were you, 18, 19 years old? So, so you weren't in Taekwondo that long before you started fighting as an AMI? Uh,
1: I I had my first fight, I think, as eight, I was 18 years old. I think I did a, a year in amateur and then I went pro
0: and so how long were you in in taekwondo before you decided to be an amateur to to fight in a cage
1: Uh, when i got in taekwondo i think i was 16 years old i did it for a year and then i did a uh, mma i started doing mma so i had my first fight when i was 18. you know and i did a year and then i went pro at 19.
0: so that's that's crazy that's that's barely any experience at all now i'm curious like you said it was really hard to watch some of that stuff out there and, and you know, like to look back at it all. Ha, have you always been a guy who, who's just wanted to throw on the feet or did, did some part of the ground game sort of come about, you know, somewhere in there?
1: Uh, I guess it's just in a, when I was younger, I was I always wanted to stand up and stuff like that, but I always worked my ground no matter what because I know I needed to work on when I started doing MMA. So I, just, I did focus on my ground a lot too, then my stand-up. And I still do this in this day. And it's just, the one, I feel more comfortable standing up, but I really don't mind if we'll go to the ground or anything like that. So I feel comfortable in everywhere.
0: I love it. Now, I, I got to ask, too, because we're talking about, you know, 10 years ago, you making your amateur debut. It was 2012. But we're talking about you about to fight a guy at UFC Vegas 62 who was already in the UFC at that point, who had made his UFC debut before you have ever stepped foot into an amateur cage, what is it like getting a chance to have that legendary name across the cage from you in Cub Swanson?
1: Uh when his name came up, you know, I was really excited about it. You know, I was like, yeah, I'll take it. You know, I had to see first. I thought I was 45, but then it said 35, and I was like, okay, yeah, for sure, you know. You know, and but it doesn't feel any different. I feel it doesn't feel any different because you know, it's the same thing, like, I was used to be a big fan of uh, Almeida, too, and, you know, I fought him, and just see him across as a regular person, you know, he wants what I want, and just got to beat him first.
0: Absolutely. Now, I, I know, obviously, you're, you're saying it's the same thing standing across from you, but this is also a big fight for you in terms of the division, in terms of what this could do for your career, because you're on a three-fight winning streak, and, and like you said, some of those those names we've heard before, guys like Almeida, but this is the biggest name you've had across me. This is a guy who could really punch your ticket into being in that next level. Where do you feel like a big win over Cub Swanson puts you in in the bantamweight division?
1: I feel a like win with him. Uh, hopefully, I get, I'll be ranked or something because I see all these guys getting ranked fighting just pretty much other people. They're not even ranked, so you know. Hopefully, I get ranked or people will know who I am and stuff like that. So I'm really excited. Going in there and stuff.
0: Absolutely, and and obviously Cub Swanson, you know, is a guy who who like you has always been more comfortable on his feet. It, are you pleased with that piece of the matchup? Are you pleased with having that kind of style, uh, you know, to face off for with your for your fourth straight win? Oh uh,
1: yeah, I, I like I like that style. Or, or in reality, it doesn't really matter. Like even a, a, a grappler, I just feel comfortable both ways. So is the same thing striker or, is just a striker or if I'm fighting a wrestler I feel we're comfortable on both
0: awesome awesome now I, I'm gonna get a prediction from you out before we get out of here but I do like to always ask most of the fighters who I interview and I'm a big connoisseur of fight nicknames I always like to know where they come from so do you mind sharing with us the story about how you became the dragon or when the dragon became your nickname uh, I
1: think I was in the seventh grade when they started calling me that. I used to wear—I used to be a guy that wore a lot of dickies. Right now you can't really tell because I have a cauliflower ears. I used to have like really big ears, and they kind of like hanged a little bit. But my hair was back, and they just said I look like a, a dragon just because my hair was back and my ears are big. So it just <laughs> got like that. So they was like, "I'm gonna call you dragon." So I just been having that name for a long time. So everybody pretty much knows me. And Texas, is a dragon that's – so just stuck with it. So
0: so obviously then when you become a, a professional fighter, they ask – you know, in those regional shows, they ask you to put the nickname on the line. There was no doubt. The dragon was going right on there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like even my kids, uh, my oldest kid and my youngest one uh, – well, more the youngest one, they'll call him a baby dragon because he's five <laughs> years old. So, you know, so he likes that. So he always tells people, yeah, yeah I'm baby dragon.
0: <laughs> i love that i love that so let, let's talk about the big dragon again one more time you know you're fighting cup swanson at ufc vegas 62 give us a prediction how does this one end
1: uh, i don't really like saying stuff like that but you know it's gonna be exciting you know i train hard and i know he
0: does but like you know
1: i uh, put all the work in so you know my hands will be, my hand will be raised that day I don't know how but
0: i know it is all right. Well, you're here to hear first, folks. This has been Jonathan Martinez, who fights Cub Swanson at UFC Vegas 62. That fight is on October 15th. Jonathan, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Jonathan Martinez. I right, once again am Daniel Gumby Freeland, joined now by my co host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, let's start this. Here, let's start this. Let's start right here. Uh, Mackenzie Dern this past weekend, I, I think she did. What we feared was the problem for we talked about what the ceiling was for her last week. And we talked about the fact that, you know, the the big fear is that her wrestling doesn't always work out and our, our fears came to fruition. So my question for you here to kick things off is what is the ceiling for Mackenzie Dern? Do we see enough of this switching around that we can talk about her as a
2: title challenger one day? No, she needs to change. She needs to change a lot. I'm I'm hyped up on this, Gumby, because I have tremendous respect for Mackenzie Dern, especially as someone who is such a good uh, example of the art that we both love in BJJ. But you cannot, I repeat, you cannot go into these fights and not have takedowns to get to the ground. And the book is out on her now, too. The fact that that uh, Yunnan is giving an interview afterward, saying I'm a white belt, and you know she's surviving these interactions, it's not a good look. And for Mackenzie Dern to have to rely on just falling down to get someone into her guard, um, it's just not good. And the potential's there. I mean, her striking is not great. I thought her head was way out of position. She overextends herself on a lot of her striking, so that's an issue, but it's okay, and she's got a chin on her. But we would be all over someone who had no jiu-jitsu defense, right? And we'd say, okay, it's so clearly obvious, this person needs to go, you know, train and work on their jiu-jitsu defense for a year and come back, and they're going to be the complete package. Well, for Mackenzie Dern, it's just so ironic to say, you know, this great grappler, An all-time great grappler and exhibited in UFC, too. So she's a good grappler for MMA, but she doesn't have takedowns. She needs to go do a wrestling camp for two years uh, and then come back and, you know, not rely on just falling down to get someone into her guard. It, It fires me up, Gumby.
0: Yeah, and I'll say this, too. You know, you mentioned her striking has gotten to the point where it is sustainable, right? Like, she, she can live with her hands. Because earlier in her career, that was a big question. She started to work with Jason Perillo. That got fixed. Now, you you almost have the sense now that if she just found a good enough camp to really attack that offensive wrestling, you know, somewhere like AKA, that it has had DC and Habib and, you know, Javier Mendez is, is got a camp built there, where there are a lot of great offensive wrestlers. It feels like if she had just done something like that, she could fill that hole too. But here's my question for you. With her dad being a world champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu specialist who, you know, Megaton's got some takedowns, right? But Megaton is not known for his takedowns, isn't known for all that part of his game. Do you think she ever says to herself, maybe I need to hire a new grappling coach that involves more of the wrestling game Or is that why we now think that ceiling exists where she's not going to improve to get that wrestling to a more serviceable position like she
2: did her striking? Uh, You brought it up, right? That I couldn't tell you. I don't have insight into her camp. I don't have insight into her head. I didn't hear any of this in the post fight, which worries me. But if I'm her agent, if I'm her team, I don't know the dynamics of how involved her dad is. She needs to go find that camp. I mean, you give her you know, Kamzat Shumayev's level of takedown, uh, Khabib, like you mentioned at an AKA, you're dealing with an all around complete package and someone who, if she, the other, here's the big thing too. If she got it to the ground, you know, she's going to be in a good spot because that's where she wants to take the fight. She's not dictating where the fight is right now. And it's ridiculous that she could, you know, pull or set up a single leg, a number of times and she couldn't finish it. And I get that easier said than done, you know, especially in MMA, but you just got to do, I mean, this is clearly the deficiency in Mackenzie Dern and it's the one piece missing now. So I hope she goes and figures that out. Um, but I, you know, I can't tell you how that happened or if that will happen.
0: Yeah. And it, it I I'm, I'm with you on that one. I, I don't know if it'll happen. It feels like it won't. But at the same time, like, you know, and it's worth mentioning that Yan Chanan has made some real improvements to her game, too. Because, like, you know, she, yes. she did, first of all, defend Mackenzie Dern really well Survive. in that second and yeah. fifth round. Which, by the way, maybe Mackenzie Dern should have gotten the 10-8 uh, third round. Like, one judge gave it to her. Mm-hmm. That could have been a draw. Um, But, like, you know, like, she did a good job defending that. She did a good job keeping her feet in the other three rounds which just goes to show you when you make a camp change, like she did after the Carla Esparza fight to start working with team alpha male and drilling takedown defense and drilling submission defense, like suddenly she's good enough to beat somebody like Mackenzie Dern, who I think would have beaten her a while ago. So I think it's really that about improvement and it's about like locating what the biggest deficiency is. And you know, here's the other thing, you know, we mentioned the dad thing, but also You walk out of a fight having arguably a 10-8 round five with a chance to beat the number five contender in the world. A lot of times you're like, hey, look pretty damn good on the ground there. Pat yourself on the back and call it a day. Maybe I got to keep sharpening my striking up. Uh, And you don't make that improvement. So, you know, there's a lot of things for me pointing towards worries. Uh, about her not getting better in you know getting better in in areas that we think she maybe needs less work on or not getting better in areas she does need work on and i'm just gonna say that that is a a huge bummer as somebody who loves seeing like you said a a great ambassador to
2: to jiu-jitsu Right there with you. All right, let's move on. We get to break out our old favorite segment on the show that we don't get to do enough. Uh, It's a combat countdown this week because we don't have fights to break down. So we'll go to another old reliable for us, which is breaking down the UFC's most forgotten champions. That's our combat countdown this week. Caveat, we are not talking interim champs here, people. We are talking about actual UFC champions that are just kind of forgotten by time. Underhyped, if you will, which in the land of UFC is kind of rare because it's, it's a sport that relies on overhyping. So without further ado, let's get to the combat countdown. But first, Gumby, does anyone sponsor this edition of combat countdown? Absolutely,
0: the Combat Countdown is brought to you by Maroon Social, M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, jiu-jitsu, or any other martial art, you can use Maroon Social to log your training sessions, tag your training partners, log competitions, weigh-ins, and so much more. Ditch that dirty jiu-jitsu journal and get yourself Maroon Social wherever it is you download apps. All
2: right. Let us Start then with our most forgotten champions and before we even get to number five let us start with our honorable mentions who's an honorable mention this week Gumby
0: so we're gonna give an honorable mention to RDA he's a recent champ and I think he doesn't make the list just because of the Conor McGregor beef and the Conor McGregor what if fight that we always talk about which was when Conor was first gonna move up to 55 and try to become a, a simultaneous double champ which of course we know he eventually did at the expense of Eddie Alvarez but rda you know he went out there beat the hell out of benson henderson had himself some really nice fights including one with eddie alvarez but i think we forget about it because it was short sometimes and he didn't have that like mega fight that we're thinking about you know like the the conor mcgregor one but the fact that it was even talked about moves him just off of our list here uh and into the honorable mention slot
2: yeah, he defended against Donald Cerrone, and I feel like even that is is somewhat of- a I think forgotten. I forgot about that until you just said it. <laughs> exactly. So that's completely forgotten. And, uh, you know, I, the whole thing with Connor and Nate, it's exactly what you said. It just, uh, the whole thing got so overshadowed that we sort of lost. In in the the spotlight of Connor and Nate, that you know RDA was champion that year. <laughs> it's just like I don't know. It just uh it gets forgotten as we already said. You know who else I'm actually going to put in as a forgotten champion? What about Cody Garbrandt? Oh yeah, but but here's the thing though. I, so the reason I didn't put him on this
0: list is that. C- Cody Garbrandt's uh, dismantling of Dominic Cruz was so iconic in the way that he like did the robot dance. And then, of course, right. we have we have the rivalry with T.J. Dillashaw that came off of that and the good press conference. I think you'll find the ones that we did put on this list don't have a moment that you can like point to and say, that's when he did that thing or that's when she did that thing. You're just kind of like... Maybe the thing you remember the most is them losing it.
2: (laughs) Right, right, right. All right. Well, I like that. Let's get to it then. Number five This is a good one. He had a wonderful performance to win the title. Close match up until he ended it. um, And then he lost it in spectacular fashion. Uh, to someone everyone thought he should have beaten. I'm, of course, talking about middleweight champ Luke Rockhold, who is middleweight champ for 175 days.
0: Yeah, I put Luke Rockhold on this list for a, a clear reason. You know, I, I alluded to it a second ago. The most famous thing he did as a champion was give it away to Michael Bisping. Um, right. Like he won his fight, which you, you mentioned really close, very exciting fight with Chris Weidman. And of course we all remember the Chris Weidman moments with, with Anderson Silva and just being, you know, like so shocking to the world. And I think people forgot he got TKO'd by Luke Rockhold. Luke Rockhold gave it up right after that. And it's really not even the most impressive title run of, of Luke Rockhold's career. Like if you want to peel it back, how about beating Jacare, Keith Jardine, and Tim Kennedy back-to-back-to-back to back to back in Force, and he closed down the Strike Force middleweight division? So, like, he had this spectacular title run. I think people sometimes forget he was a champ. It seemed like the—and the, the and this one really came to me, too, when we were talking about the fight with Paulo Costa. I don't think people say enough former champion Luke Rockhold. I think he just gets kind of, like, thrown in there. Oh, like, one of the other AKA guys— he he had a title just like the other AKA guys. So uh, yeah, shout out to Luke Rockhold and uh, he makes number five on this not so fun list to be on.
2: Well, if you're doing a not so fun list, you know, the 145 pound female champion would be on it because that division has been just insanity from day one. And we're of course talking about Jermaine Durandamy, our number four most forgotten champion. Yeah, she's,
0: again, uh, maybe the thing we remember most about her title run is that she chose to give it up instead of actually fighting Chris Cyborg because she claimed she was all roided up. So uh, Jemaine Durandamy's run at 145, nobody really wanted her to be the champ first. Like, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here. She was supposed to fight Cyborg for the belt or Holly Holm was supposed to fight Cyborg for the belt. And Cyborg had to pull out of the fight and we wind up with Jemaine Durandomy versus Holly Holm in one of the worst title fights I've ever seen in my whole life. It included about 37 eye pokes and three hits after the bell. And instead we get Jermaine Durandomy walking away with a title that she'd never defend and refused to defend and winds up having it taken away only to just go back to 135 pounds as happy as she's ever been. Um, so yeah, Jermaine Durandomy she was a champ once. <laughs>
2: Yeah, what a joke. All right, let's get to number three. Um, this one, you know, he was talked about at a time. He was arguably the best 170-pounder, Uh and I think it just gets lost uh almost in the aftermath of his performance against GST, where many people thought he won the title, but he didn't. And then it led to GSP retiring, and then he ends up winning the title, but never defending. And I'm, of course, talking about Johnny Hendricks. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Like,
0: when we were talking just before we started recording, I had had the mental image that he had won some interim title. And when GSP retired, they upgraded him. But no, he had lost to GSP, which I did remember correctly. And that's maybe the most famous thing about his run to the title is his loss at the title that everybody thought he deserved. But then he got a shot immediately after, uh, and he made good on that shot against Robbie Lawler. They get a rematch shortly thereafter. As a matter of fact, in the same calendar year, they get a rematch, and Robbie Lawler wins it. So he didn't defend his title, not even once. He only fought the same guy twice, and he fought him to two decisions. Now, I want to ask you something about this. So It was an immediate rematch for Johnny Hendricks, but do you know that it wasn't an immediate rematch for,
2: for Robbie Lawler? I do only because I remember a lot of UFC fights based on like personal things that happened to me. And I was at a wedding and literally made my wife leave the wedding early, not our wedding. Someone else's <laughs> uh, leave the fight early because it was a UFC on Fox card, if I'm not mistaken, where uh, it was Lawler and um, uh, Matt Brown. Yep, you are
0: 100% right. But he also beat Jake Ellenberger in between. So he lost. Did he? Uh, oh he my lost, gosh. He lost to Johnny Hendricks in March, beat Ellenberger in May, beat Matt Brown in July, beat Johnny Hendricks in December. Crazy run for Robbie Lawler. But that's not who this is about. This is about Johnny Hendricks. Lame 266 days as the champ before he dropped it to Robbie Lawler. Um, and again, quite forgettable title run.
2: Uh, let's get to our number two. Uh, and this is a nice one for the old school heads. It's Rico Rodriguez. Yeah. So Rico Rodriguez,
0: weird circumstances that led him to be champion. First of all, uh, he he only got his title shot because Josh Barnett was stripped of his title after testing positive for anabolic steroids. They needed somebody to fight Randy Couture and basically try to gift wrap Randy Couture, the belt and Rico Rodriguez had different ideas. So For a guy who, by the way, got Randy Couture to tap to strikes, which I feel like not enough people remember. For some reason, a lot of people don't remember that this guy was heavyweight champ at all. Now, it was quite a long time ago, so we tried to stay away from just doing, like, the oldest champs across the board. But a guy got Randy Couture to tap out after having a champ test positive for anabolic steroids and then was beat by another champ who, get this, tested positive for anabolic steroids and had the title stripped from him – So, like, very weird circumstances that led to a Rico Rodriguez title run that involved only a win over Randy Couture and then a loss to Tim Sylvia. Uh, 154 days as champ, quite forgettable.
2: All right, let's get to our numero uno. And, oh, is she forgettable? It's Nico Montano.
0: Yeah, and Nico Montano, the weirdest title run in history because, first of all, she, she wins the title, the inaugural flyweight title, in maybe one of the most bizarre ways, uh, she runs through the ultimate fighter. She winds up needing to be up against a replacement opponent. She was supposed to originally invite Sajara Eubanks. Eubanks uh, missed the weight. They had a backup fighter ready to go, Roxanne Matafari. Roxanne Matafari loses a close decision to Nico Montano, making her the first ever flyweight champion. She has to drop out of like 30 fights. After that, you know, botched weight cuts, issues with health, and, you know, there's articles out there. You could read them about what happened to Nico Montano. She actually only fought one more time after that, and it was at Bantamweight. She never even got to fight in that weight class again. She fought Juliana Pena, lost a unanimous decision. We never saw for her again. Um, You know, she was released by the UFC this past – or uh, a year ago this past August. And, you know, it's it's kind of a shame that we never got to see what came of her because she was so young in her career – You know, when she got her title shot, she was only three and two um, losses to very high level opponents in different weight classes. Uh, So she was undefeated at flyweight, but only two and oh. So like to see somebody like that have all of that potential um, and and really, you know, achieve the highest level of the sport and hold on to that belt for 280 days, if that's what you want to call it. Um, Nico Montano, what a name that a lot of people will forget in the future.
2: Wow, I love it. Uh, I think we did great with this list, Gumby, but we want to hear from you. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Hit us up on our social medias. At Top Turtle MMA is where you can find us. Uh Instagram, Twitter, that is. We don't mess with the Facebook. Gumby, this has been a hell of an edition of Combat Countdown, but where do we go next in this great show of ours? Well, we're going to transition
0: to my interview now with yet another Martinez who fights at UFC Vegas 62, Mana Martinez. uh, And we're going to talk about all kinds of things MMA, including jumping guards. So you're going to want to make sure to check out that interview right now. All right, and joining me today is Mana Martinez, who fights Brandon Davis at UFC Vegas 62. That fight is on October 15th. So. Man, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Right before we went on air, I was doing a little snooping on your tapology page. I'm looking at your amateur career, and I see you've got four straight arm bars at one point in time, absolutely mangling people. Now, I'm very familiar with your pro career, and you've been knocking fools out nonstop since you turned pro. So, you you got to let me know. What, what exactly was the transition here for you? Um,
3: the people love to see knockouts. They love violence, you know, and... To be honest, I was kind of stuck in some old habits, bad ways in my amateur career. That kind of got me through somehow. I would uh, actually, if you go back and watch some of those fights, if you can find them somehow. I would uh, pull guard, <laughs> which I've come to find out or I came to figure out that later on in this game, guys know how to defend arm bars fairly well <laughs> and will definitely miss you pay with grounded pounds. So... Um, a little bit of you know breaking that bad habit, and then uh, trusting my stand-up game. I, it's always been there since since my karate background with the with the young age that I started at. It it's been there, and um, yeah, just honing in on on my on my knockout
0: power and and really be being able to put guys away like that. So I I gotta ask too because some of these fights say in a very short period of time, obviously. Were, were you jumping guard like the minute these fights started, like right away?
3: Oh, yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> I, I've got to find them somehow or, or maybe look up look up a way to post them or something as a throwback. But, yeah, you know, I, I'd maybe faint a kick or two, and they'd come in. And when, as soon as they get in range, I'd pull guard, boom, throw up an arm bar, and I'm out. But uh, <laughs> like I said, I kind of have to find out the hard way. I think my last amateur fight, the guy was tough. He knew that armbar was coming, and um, we went all five rounds just for a amateur belt. But yeah, as soon as I turned pro, I knew I was like, no, no more playing around in guard, man.
0: <laughs> that that's crazy for me to think about because you know, the, there's so few guys you've seen in the UFC do that. You know, the the Stefan Struves of the world, or something like Matt, maybe have pulled it off once or twice, or Alexei Olenek, or something like that. But so I, I got to ask, too, like, like you said, you you had a tough out there, but there was ever a talk with your coach where your coach was like, hey, dude, you got to stop jumping guard in the middle of those?
3: Oh, yeah, and, and that coach just so happened to be my father. It was my dad at the <laughs> time, uh, which which he still is in my corner. But he told me straight up, like, what are you doing? And uh, well, I said, you know, I told him, like, man, you put me in jujitsu for – three four five years so I'm used to playing guard you know so I feel comfortable so you know I had to kind of make that transition to MMA and eventually I did figure it out so he kind of got on got on my my ass about it and made me break that bad habit and you know he told me trust trust my stand-up and I did ultimately and and it paid off throughout my whole uh, pro career and it'll continue to
0: it, now, I, I got to ask one final question about that. Is that that's got to be one of those moments where you listen to another coach before you listen to your dad. We all had it in Little League, but you have it just an amateur MMA with jumping guard.
3: <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> luckily, um, I, I was introduced to Coach Stahl, and, you know, rest in peace to him, but he he also, you know, made it clear today that hey, you got to trust in your stand-up, man. Your stand-up it is very nice, and we don't need to be on bottom playing cards. So once he kind of gave me that second option or that second opinion, I should say, I definitely took that one as well and um, just kept it standing from here on out.
0: I love it. Now, let, let's keep talking about that stand-up, because obviously that, that is what got you to where you are today. I, I wanted to talk about, you know, your last win before you got to the UFC. You win that Fury FC Championship on that Dana White's looking for a fight by beating the heck out of Jose Johnson. I was wondering if you happened to catch the fact that Jose Johnson was just on Contender Series not that long ago. He wins a contract, will be in the UFC now. Well, what's it like seeing a dude who you, you beat pretty damn well you know, now also at the highest level. I I knew when I beat him, as long
3: as he, you know, stuck with it and continues to fight, that he'd most likely make it to this level. He's a very skilled and a technical stand-up guy. So me just knowing that and keeping that in the back of my mind, Eventually, I knew he would make it to that level, and it shows. And he's um, he's been on a little bit of a tear, so I, he's definitely been on my radar. And you know, guys like Ricky Tercio, who I also beat, also seeing him in the UFC is crazy. So these these guys are you know high high notch level guys, and um, for them to make it to to the level I'm at as well, and continuing to stick with it after suffering a loss for me i i give them the respect and yeah prop, prop Jose johnson man because he he had another i think dana white looking for a fight and then and that didn't work out and then he got his contender series fight and that ended up working out so he stuck with it and, and he's here man
1: so
0: props to him Absolutely. And and bouncing back from a loss is something I I wanted to talk to you about, too. It's obviously the least pleasant thing talking to a fighter about a recent loss. But, you know, you you are coming off of the first loss of your UFC, the first loss since you lost back on Contender Series all the way back in 2020 to to a good prospect in Ronnie Lawrence. You know, what was your big takeaway from the loss? What is the thing that you felt like, you know, maybe we needed to go back to the drawing board and clean up a little bit?
3: Just just not underestimating my opponent. You know, he came in there with a, a very good strategy of not just wrestling, but mixing up his wrestling with stand-up. And I was expecting a very wrestle-heavy match. But unfortunately, he, he came with some, some good striking and switched it up, blended it very well. But the biggest lesson I also learned was making the fight my game. And you could totally tell once I did that in the third round, the tides changed and it was a little bit too late, obviously. But as long as I implement my game and dictate the pace that I wanted to go from the beginning bell to the end bell, I will always get my hand raised. So it's another big lesson I took and, and just go out there and be myself, you know, not don't be too focused on – their strategy, their game plan, and just worry about me, so I've made those adjustments this camp, and i'm I'm happy to see and I' gonna perform october fifteenth
0: well that that's awesome to hear now, you know obviously, I gotta ask you about the opponent, even though now you're talking about just fighting your game, but you know you get given Brandon Davis, a guy who's been in you know he's been in some wars, but the, he likes to grapple a little bit too. What were your thoughts on them offering you him as an opponent? And, and you know, from basically the film you've watched or the previous fights you've watched of his, what do you think of him as a fighter?
3: I was excited when when I heard the matchup was offered and he accepted because he seems to be a um, more kickboxing heavy stand up guy, and that ball fall, falls right into my alley. So, smart and actually seen more of his film, I know that he will probably look for a takedown attempt or, you know, a fit-in to stop it down a bit. If he does decide to keep it a, a standing affair, then I'd be more than happy to welcome him to that. But I, I definitely do see him t- trying to take me down or, or an attempt. And you're right, he, he definitely has been around and, and, and seen a bunch of different styles, but I don't think he's seen anything like mine, and we'll we'll see how it plays out October 15th.
0: Yeah, and that's my final question for you. I always like to ask my fighters before I let them go. How do you see it playing out on October 15th? Give us a prediction.
3: I see my hand getting raised, and and as much as everybody wants it to be fight of the night, because there is definitely potential, and, and I definitely see they can see where it's written all over it, fight of the night candidate i see myself going in there and and having a breakout performance i've been saying and i'm going to continue to say because i truly believe that in myself and the adjustments i made to this camp are are some that i have yet to make so this is going to be a a true test and i'm definitely going to back up my words with, with the actions that i go in there and put october 15th when i go put away brandon davis
0: All right, well, you heard it here first, folks. This has been Mana Martinez, who fights Brandon Davis at UFC Vegas 62. That fight, once again, is on October 15th. Mana, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it.
3: I appreciate you having me, Dan. Thank you so much, man.
0: And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We would not have a show without you guys. We also want to thank our sponsor, Maroon Social, and remind you guys that you can check us out on social media at Top Turtle MMA in both Twitter and Instagram. Until next week, I'm Daniel Gumby-Freeland. He's Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we will catch you then.